Hey, I'm Elissa Nicole Trust, an actor and writer based in New York City. I'm Lauren Schaffel, an actor and producer also living in New York City. And, and we are Positive Creativity Podcast. Positive Creativity is a podcast where we speak with artists from all disciplines about how they got their start, what's inspiring them, and how they stay positive in the entertainment industry. We speak with artists based in New York, L.A., and beyond. Our goal is to give creative artists a platform to share their experiences and talk about their work. We hope that our listeners will enjoy the insights, stories, and perspectives from a diverse group of artists from all sides of the industry. Thanks for listening. Chamber Stevens is an Emmy Award-winning actor, playwright, author, and acting coach. As an actor, Chambers has appeared in over 50 commercials and many television shows. He's the author of the Hollywood 101 series, which includes the very first book of original commercials ever written for young actors, as well as original film, television scenes, and monologues. Backstage Magazine awarded him five awards, including Best Acting Coach in L.A., and actors he's coached have appeared on network television shows, plus countless films, theater productions, commercials, and video games. This was a very special episode for me because Chambers was one of my first acting coaches. I was six years old. He helped me discover my joy of acting and truly my sense of humor. And it's clear from his stories that he continues to do this with his students today. Chambers is an amazing storyteller. He's absolutely hilarious. We loved hearing his stories of becoming an actor, playwright, and coach, and all about the many plays he's currently producing and writing. We know you'll be entertained and likely laugh out loud listening to this conversation. Welcome, Chambers. Hey, guys. It's so great to be on your podcast. I have uh, been listening and been a fan of it, and uh, it's really great. It's a nice early morning here in Los Angeles, and I'm really excited that you guys asked me to be on. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for hopping on in the morning. Totally. Um, so for those who don't know, Chambers, yeah, in Los Angeles, it is around 8.45 for you. So serious commitment here. Thank you. <laughs> On a Sunday. Don't forget the Sunday part. Oh, gosh. That's right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So our first question for you, which you may be prepared for if you've been listening, is what is currently inspiring you? Okay. Um, well, um, so I have a studio in Hollywood, uh, and uh, I don't know if you have got a chance to see any of uh, my studio. It's painted like a Mondrian painting, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, every single room in the, my studio is painted like a Mondrian painting. And um, so I always have a lot of actors here and a lot of well, you know other writers working on projects and stuff. Um, but right before the pandemic, uh, a very strange thing happened. Um, a couple months before the pandemic, I did a play at the famous Met Theater in Los Angeles, and it's a beautiful theater. It's been there for a long time. It was started by um, Ed Harris, and it, it's just a great theater. I mean, Robert Altman went there to be inspired. I mean, it's just a really great theater, and, and my play was one of the last plays they did before the owner of the theater actually passed away. And um, when you walked into the theater, they had this beautiful um, like 
study, almost like a study with all these old plays that were in these glass cages, I guess cases. They, I guess what had happened is they were donated by someone and then the audience would often come and sort through the plays. Sometimes they would steal them. So they had to put them in these glass you know, cases wow. and um, somebody lost the key back in the 70s. OK, so um, the Paul, who owned the theater, um, passed away and he gave me um, the plays as because I'm an acting coach that I could do scenes with these plays. OK, now. So they told me that I had to come get them. It took seven SUVs to um, bring them all to my place. We're talking 3,000 volumes. Okay? Wow. Wow. 3,000. Okay. Um, many of them are first editions. In fact, th- six of the plays were actually published in America before Benjamin Franklin was born. What? Yes. Okay. They're not just like Samuel. Well, actually, some of them are Samuel French scripts from 1865. Okay, Whoa. did you know? What? Yes, it's crazy. So during, so I started dusting them off, and then the pandemic hit. So I was surrounded by these 3,000 volumes of plays, and they just inspired me like crazy. And um, so, bam, there I was, and I started writing like just writing like a crazy man. Okay. Cause you know, in LA, we couldn't go out well, like in New York, couldn't go outside. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I guess these 3000 volumes really have been inspiring me for the last couple of years. Oh my goodness. That is the coolest story. Yeah. That's insane. And you know what's really cool? They're all used. So some of the plays are like, um, they have, they're, they've been signed and like they, they, um, like, okay. One of the, one of the plays uh, was a, a play I looked up, and it is a bomb in Detroit in the forties or something. It was a bomb, and these two guys, these two young guys, wrote the play. It was done in Detroit. Nobody liked it, but then they wrote another play, and their next play was called My Fair Lady. Hmm. I think I've heard I've of that. Heard of that one? So, <laughs> I called, so I called the Learner and Low Foundation to tell them I had this play, okay, and it uh, and it's not published. It's in a, you know, it's like typed, okay. And the woman answers the phone and she said, well, she actually, I leave a message and she calls me back like two weeks later, okay. And she's like very, ca- you know, very New York, very cashmere. You know, you can just see her sitting at the Learner and Low Foundation with like pearls, and she's like. So you say you own a copy of this play. And I start laughing and she's like, why are you laughing? And I said, because of all the people in Los Angeles that got, that found this old play, I'm actually the only person who probably knows what it is. Okay. And and, and, oh, and I never thought that you wouldn't believe me. <laughs> and so I, I, I and, oh, I forgot to tell the most interesting part in the play. There was a copy of sheet music of one of the songs. Whoa, that is so cool. So it's a song by Jane Lerner that has never been recorded. Okay. Wow. So she can't, you know, so um, she can't believe it because obviously all his papers are in the Smithsonian. Okay. So I'm, I'm working on right now donating that to the Smithsonian. So there's like a lot of things like that, that I, I can't even really talk about from this collection that have really been inspiring me. And what, 
you know, and Alyssa and Lauren, I mean, think about it. In our profession, I have all these things that have gone back to like 1717, you know, that the people have been working on our craft. I mean, can you imagine this this collection of plays is uh, one of these has like 10 volumes that people actually in 1717 in America wanted to buy seven volumes of plays. Wow. Wild. That. Wow. 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 Yeah. As you were talking, like before you mentioned the Smithsonian, I was like, these belong in a museum. Like this is bonkers. Yeah. There, uh, is, a, there is actually a, a typewritten draft of um, Noel Coward's play. Um, Blythe Spirit yeah. that does not match the printed copy that I have of Blythe Spirit. Whoa. Wow. So I don't know if it's an early draft. Okay. And then there's another copy of Neil Simon's first play, Come Below Your Horn, which is totally different than the published version. So um, I'm very excited. And I feel like that I'm a steward of these incredible gifts. And um so I'm working on deciding, you know, who they should go to. Um, oh, one more little thing. So I found this play. Um, uh, you have to ex- excuse me the woman's name, but she is one of the first playwrights who wrote a Broadway playwrights. And um, I, um, she's from a little town in Texas. So I called the little town in Texas and I said, they have a little museum there. And I told them about the play. And they said, oh, yes, we, we knew that she had lived here. And I said, uh, she's like, well, how, how much do you want for this? I'm like, I don't want anything for it. Except for I'm going to give this copy of the play to your uh, museum, but you have to do a reading of it at your museum so that other young people in town can learn that Broadway playwrights came from your little town. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. I'm I'm so embarrassed that I've forgotten her name, but you have to understand there's 3,000 of them and I've been calling a lot of places, so I'm a little um, goofy about that right now. That's so cool. It's so cool to hear of to be reminded of the long history of artists creating and having early versions probably of plays that are now so well known and just being able to actually see in front of you that like that process. It's I mean obviously you don't see the process but like see that that exists. It's so cool and to me it just makes me feel like we're all a part of something that's so much larger than ourselves. Like this industry that's been around for so long. I don't know. That's, I don't know if I said it right. Oh no, but... exactly. And, and they're, they're not only that too, but they're also acting books. Like there's an acting coach book from a man who was uh, Lucille Ball's acting coach. Okay. Whoa, what? That's it's like, funny. funny. Like, and also these incredible things too. Um, Edna Ferber, she wrote um, the Royal family with uh, George Kaufman. Okay. Like that play opened on a Saturday and her and showboat opened on a, on, on the Friday before that. And she wrote the novel that was based on, can you imagine? She's like Lin-Manuel. She had two giant classics open in one weekend. That's crazy. That is crazy. Wow. Oh my gosh. I, I now feel so inspired hearing this. Like seriously, just what? Oh my gosh. It is pretty amazing. When you come to Los Angeles, you have to come see the collection and uh, see it. Wow. I would love that. Wow. 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 Um, I don't know. I'm like, maybe you need to start your, your own museum chambers or like part of your (laughs) studio needs to just be an exhibit on like 
the history of, of plays in America. It does really, it does inspire you to see all, and and there are so many autobiographies too. And it's like so funny to think about, you know, that these autobiographies of actors on stage, because, you know, the people that would buy them would never have even seen the people who were on stage and people want to read about some, you know, performers who, you know, I I understand like movie star biographies because you can watch the movie, but I have like 40 of those. That's really unusual too, I think. Oh my gosh. Definitely. Yeah. So cool. Um, amazing. Absolutely amazing. So, so taking it back a little bit and like thinking about stories, we want to hear about your story. So you do so many things. Um, you're an actor, you're a playwright, you're a co an acting coach. Um, so I feel like there's probably a lot of stories here, but first, can you tell us your story of becoming, um, an actor and a playwright? And then we want to hear about how you became a coach as well. All right. So um, I love I love origin stories. So this is my little origin story. I'm from a little town uh, outside of Nashville, Tennessee called Hendersonville, which is uh, known as having more um, country music stars per square inch than any place in the world. OK, so like down the street from me, live Johnny Cash and Roy Orbison and all these really incredible people like that. So I kind of grew up um with music and, but I really loved the theater and, um, but I, there was no theater to go to in my little town, but there was some in Nashville. And my father was a very romantic man and he was deeply in love with my mother. And so they went on a date every month to the theater. Okay. And, um, they went to a place called, uh, it was a, it was a called the Barn Dinner Theater. It was in a giant theater. It looked like a barn, and uh, they would eat, and then they would watch the play. And the cool, the play was in the round, and the the actual stage came from the ceiling. So they ate in the middle. So all like the buffet was in the middle, and then there were the sides, and then the stage. They would, they would clean up the buffet, and then the stage would come from the ceiling and would come down. Okay, and you know, and they, my mother would always come home, and she would bring the program and then tell me about it. And I would beg and beg and beg and beg and beg, please, please. And so when I was 11, they finally allowed me to come to see a show. And it was um, Agatha Christie's play, um, The Mousetrap, which, you know, is one of the longest running plays of all time. And, um, you know, in that play, uh, the lights always go out and then someone plays three blind mice. And when the lights come back up, someone's been killed. Okay, so I'm 11 years old. I'm watching this play in the round and I'm sitting on the aisle and I didn't I don't know. It's a murder mystery. I don't know anything about it. And the lights go out and somebody plays it. And I'm really close to the stage. And then the lights come back on and someone's dead on stage. Okay, and then intermission and the. The, you know, the stage goes up into the ceiling again. And I'm like, totally fascinating. I had never been that close to a dead person before. Of course, I didn't not really know that. And then the second act happened. And when the lights went out and the and they played Three Blind Mice, the actor who played the murderer exited the aisle. And my leg was a little sticking out of the aisle. So he brushed by my leg. Okay. Now, I'm 11 I had never seen a dead person and I had just seen one half an hour before. And now I'd been touched by a murderer. I screamed as loud as I could, but the lights came back on and I, it was one of those screams that was silent because I was so in terror. My father looked at me, my mouth is like open, like, ah, like that. And, um, 
he puts his arm around me, you know, to kind of calm me down. But in that moment, Lauren and Alyssa, I had never felt so alive in my entire life. And I think that everything I've done since then is to get back to that moment of feeling so absolutely alive. Oh, wow. So from then, I uh, I started doing as much plays as I could. And I went to school in St. Louis. And um, I then came back to um, Nashville, Tennessee when I graduated. And um, I got really lucky. And I started um, – they were doing a lot of Shakespeare in Nashville. Uh, they had two equity companies and or one equity company and another professional company. They are both doing Midsummer Night's Dream. And I played Puck in both of them back to back. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, then I went to um, – tell my high school teacher, uh, theater teacher, how much, you know, how this would be, he had meant to me and he had passed away from AIDS. Um, and so I decided to, this was back in the eighties when, you know, AIDS was just like ravaging all the theater community. So I decided I had heard about a play called the normal heart. And so I decided to start a theater company and, and see if I could um, do that play. And it just closed in New York and I called New York and asked him to have it. And they, act like I was insane that they were going to give me the rights to it. And then I told them my teacher died and that we were had to have it. And then they, they gave it to us. Okay. Wow. And so we did the normal heart and it put our little theater company on the map. And um, so we decided that we then had to go to the New York Shakespeare festival, which had produced that play. And we had to go see Joseph Papp. Okay. And talk to him, which is, of course is a ridiculous idea, but um, mm-hmm. we were going to go to New York and try to talk to Joseph Papp was goofy, but um at that time, Greyhound was Greyhound was doing a special where they were selling um, tickets for seventy nine cents to New York because they were going to have a special that they were going to have seventy nine dollars anywhere anywhere you wanted to go in America. And so one day only, they would sell tickets for seventy nine cents to sponsor this new deal. So we stood in line all day. We got tickets to New York City. We took 24 hours from Nashville to New York on the ground bus. And we got there, we walked into, into the New York Shakespeare festival and the show was getting ready to start. We didn't have tickets and who's standing there, but Joe Papp. Okay. What? And we, <laughs> and we tell him that we did the whole normal heart thing. And he said, well, I heard it was in Nashville. And he said, well, you know, what, what should we do next? And he said, well, you know, I started a Shakespeare company. And we're like, okay, we're going to do that. So we went back on the bus for 79 cents back. And we started the Nashville Shakespeare Festival, which is now in its um, 32nd year in in Nashville. And it's a, um, and so we kind of based the whole thing on meeting Joe Papp and and doing that. And so I was artistic director of that for a couple of years. And I also taught acting in Nashville. And um, that's kind of how I started in my directing and my um, kind of producing career, I guess you'd say. And then how... Sorry, were you going to say something, Lauren? No, no, go ahead. I was just saying, wow. Yeah. Oh, I know. Seriously. Wow. Um, So then how did you get to LA? Well, okay. So there was was an NBC affiliate in Nashville. And I guess I should go back a little bit more. So I wanted to be an actor and, and I am an actor, but in the beginning, I was really, really horrible. Okay. 
terrible. I had no coach, nobody to help me in when I was in Nashville, terrible. So I would make up these plays and I would perform them to my mother. And my mother was a very sweet woman. But after about a year of it, she said, can't you just wait till your dad gets home perform for him? Okay. <laughs> so my dad would pull up in the driveway and I would meet him in the driveway and start doing my monologues like in the driveway. And he'd like, okay, don't the neighbors want to see what you're doing? Okay. So I started, <laughs> so I started going around the neighborhood and knocking on people's doors and performing my plays on their front porch. Okay. Well, the word got out how bad I was. And so people started avoiding me and not opening their door. No. And then um, <laughs> at the end of the block, there was this, um, I saw a delivery man come and he, uh, the mailman actually, and he uh, found a key from this house and he opened, and we always knew this woman was an invalid who lived there. Her name was Dolores. And she uh, opened up the, um, he opened up the, the door and he brought her mail in. And so when he left, I got the key and I maybe I was about 11 or something. And I opened the door and I said, she said, who is it? And I, and I said, oh, it's, uh, you know, Chambers, I live up the street. And she's like, what do you want? And I said, well, I've come to perform for you. Okay. Um, and remember, she's an invalid, so she can't get out of bed and she can't kick me out. And so I actually performed for her and she was the very first person to ever tell me I was horrible. Oh, but I needed, I was 11, but I needed that. She's like, ah, come back when you're better. So I went over <laughs> another play, rehearsed it and did it. And I did this for a long time until finally one day she was a smoker. And one day she watched something I did and she went, <clears throat> not bad. And that little, <laughs> that little cough, maybe a laugh made me just empower myself. And I started getting better and better. And she was a really tough audience. Okay. So skip ahead like a decade. Okay, so I'm doing the Nashville Shakespeare Festival and I go to an audition for the NBC affiliate and they're going to do a new series, um, a series of PSAs, and they're going to do it. And they want to have this new spoke, this new character named Steve. And so I audition and um, the producer likes this guy, one guy, and the director likes another guy, and they fight, and they can't decide who they're going to pick. And so finally, they decide to go to the local high school and show the audition tapes and let the kids actually decide. And they make a gentleman's agreement, whoever the kids choose will be the new star of this TV show. Well, they decide they need one extra person, so they put the audition tape they didn't like at all, mine, in there, and they show it to the kids. And the kids unanimously voted for me to be the character. Oh, oh wow. So I, when, the, when it aired the first time, my mother called everybody. And the next morning, the president of NBC came to, um, came to work. And the secretary said, uh, you got, the show was called Steve, and said, you got a lot of messages last night about Steve. And he says, oh, my God, what, what people hated it? And he said, she said, no, people called to say they liked it. He said, people called to say, no one ever calls to say they like something. We we're going to do one episode per month. And then all of a sudden, now we're doing like one a week. Well, it turned out that it wasn't a bunch of people that called. It was the invalid who called a bunch of times. Because what I had done performing for her all those times is I had made a little one-person fan club. So decades later, when I needed her, without me even knowing, she just called the studio and pretended to be a bunch of different voices and said, I love that actor. I love that actor. And that became my success. So, (laughs) Oh, my goodness. 
Right. So, you know, you got it. So that's why you always have to be nice to everybody because you never know when they're going to stand up for you. Yes. It like reminds me, like sometimes that's all you need. Just like one or two people in your corner to fight for you in exactly. that way. Like, yeah. and, and for many of the actors that I know, I want to be that person. Okay. I'm a, I'm want to be that person who's in their corner. Um, sometimes uh, actors will come work with me and then they'll, they'll not, then they'll, something will happen and they'll go work with another coach and, and the, the other coach will beat up on them. And, you know, and it'll be one of those, you know, a lot of acting coaches, you know, how they do that whole thing where you're almost good, but you need more of me. Like yeah. they act like you have a hole in your, in, in yourself and you have this, like your emptiness and they only can fill it, you know? And, and if you keep paying each month and come to, you know, that kind yeah. of, you know, you know, that bullshit, right? Oh yes. And so I, I, I don't do that. And that's not my thing. And so people sometimes will get aggravated and they're like, you're so positive all the time. You know, I want someone to really tear me apart and then they'll go to that coach and they'll really get torn apart. And then I'll see them like a couple of years later and I'll at a, at a restaurant or something. And I'm like, you know, Josh, how are you? Not so good. And I'm like, why don't you just come back to my studio and they'll come back. And then they always say this. Oh, my God. I forgot what it feels like when someone's in your corner. Hmm. Wow. So that's what I try to try to do for other people. So I got married and then I moved to Los Angeles and uh, I obviously needed, I was so dumb. This is how dumb I was. Okay. I decided that I, um, I need to get an agent. Now this is before cell phones and before anybody had any kind of uh, beeper. So I got someone to give me the agency book. It had 700 names in it because, you know, many of the big agencies had a hundred different agents. So I wrote a letter to all 700 of them. Oh my okay. God. And when I was driving out here, I put it in the mail. Okay. All 700, it probably cost like a thousand dollars. And, um, when I thought when I got here, I would call them all. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't blame you for that. <laughs> Remember there's no email. There's no other way. Right. Yeah. So, um, my wife had an aunt who we were staying with in Orange County. We were able to stay with for like a week. And when I, we pulled up, the phone was ringing and one of the managers had called the SAG office in Nashville, got my father's phone number. My father had said, Hey, he stay, he's going to be staying in Orange County at this place. And I walked up and the very first second I'm in Orange County, I answer the phone and she says, you have an audition tomorrow with me. Wow. And, um, wow. and so she was a real snob and she was like, she had made a you know point to kind of show me how um, you know how tough it was going to be for me and everything. But what she didn't know is that I had just had written a one person show called Desperate for Magic, which I had toured in the South. And so she said, um, and it was back in this kind of like the way one person shows used to be back in the day, where you do a bunch of different characters as monologues. You know, they're not so much like that mm-hmm. anymore. But back in the day, they were. So she came and she said, um, all right, show me a monologue. So I did a monologue from our one person show. And she's like, okay, that was pretty good. Show me another one. Well, she didn't know I had 17 different characters, right? <laughs> so she's like, she's like, uh, do another one. And I do another one. She's like, do another one. And so I kept doing it. And so she made me do all 17. Okay. Whoa, and she's wow. like, no actors ever walked in here before and in two monologues, much less 17. So I got signed from her and she became my manager for the next like six years. Wow. That is so cool. Oh my gosh. While you were talking, I was just like, what if that today was like, do 17 self tapes of different characters? Like that would actually be crazy town. But I don't want to, but I don't want you to think that I was booking right away because I absolutely did not because I didn't know how to audition. 
Okay. I mean, I didn't, mm. I didn't know how to audition at all. So I needed a kind of some kind of support job, you know, some kind of job that I could. So I decided that I would do it, get a job um, delivering packages. Okay. And so I called this place and they always need to deliver people. And they said, do you know what a Thomas guide was? Do you know what that is? Alyssa, have you ever lived in Los Angeles? No, I have not. So a Thomas guide back in the day before GPS was this really, really thick book of maps. Okay. And so people wouldn't say I live on Vine street. They would say, I live on page 43 F seven. Okay. And that's how you would kind of see where the people, you know, that's how you knew. So they wanted me to deliver a package to a house in Bel Air. And um, I went there and there was actually, it was a big house with a guard and everything. And they told me to park my car and they were just testing me to see, you know, if I knew what I was doing. And I, I went down and there was a little boy, he was like 10 years old and he was sitting outside like crying. So I'm from Tennessee, so I care. And so I, uh, <laughs> I said, what's the matter? And he says, I have this acting coach. It's really, is really mean. And I had taught acting in Nashville, but I thought, you know, no one's going to hire a 25 year old person to teach acting in Los Angeles. So I started saying, well, let me go over the lines with him. And I did. And the mother comes out and she's like dressed all Bel Airish. She's like, who are you? And the kid says, it's my new acting coach. And she's and she didn't even say like how did I get there or anything. She says, "Oh, okay. What are you doing here?" And and the kid says, "He comes to your house so you don't have to drive." And the mom's like, "Oh, thank God, I hate driving. Do you charge the same amount?" And the kid says, "No, mother. He drives here." She's like, "Oh, fine, okay." And so she goes and she writes a check to me, okay. And I coach the kid, and then I go back to the place that delivered the packages and they say we are definitely not hiring you you take forever to deliver packages <laughs> and i tell my wife looks like i have to get another job and it turns out the kid had never booked a job before but he booked that one and so wow. the agent called and said i told you that acting coach is really good and the mother being from bel-air said oh please we don't use him we use chambers stevens he comes to your house and the agent's <laughs> like oh my god he does and she called me, and the next day I had clients. Oh, that's so cool. This is – it's so amazing to hear this story, Chambers, because, like, all the time I've known you, I, I never knew the beginning of how you became an acting coach. Yes, and so one of my amazing. clients was Lauren, okay, and uh, who I always – I mean, really, I, I always adored you from the moment I met you, um, oh. just – tons i mean you you know you you've always been i mean Alyssa. i know it was your idea to do the positivity podcast and i can tell from just you know listening to other episodes how positive you are and you have um the perfect partner in lauren because she has been goofily positive her entire life <laughs> so um thank you i'm really glad you guys are partners Oh my gosh thank you and seriously the feeling is mutual the first time i met you and started working with you i was like Oh yeah, acting is supposed to be fun. Like <laughs> what? And as a kid, like you, it's always kind of make believe, you know. And it's like whatever. I get to like pretend I'm in a Barbie commercial today. Cool. But like it was never as much fun as when we were working together and like writing stuff and just like yeah, like you said, like goofing around and a lot of things. That was so fun. And what's also funny too is that, um, Alyssa, did you know that uh, in one of the episodes of Charlie Brown that Lauren is Lucy? Am I right, Lucy? Is that right, Lauren? Yeah, That's I okay. did know that, and I love it. It's so you know, cute. 
Because she's so, because Lucy's so negative and Lauren is so positive. I think that's so funny. Okay. Oh my God. What you don't know about me is I love getting to play mean because I so rarely, it's like not what I lead with in life. But when I get to just like, you know, be a little, for lack of a better word, get to be a little asshole, like a little maniac. It's so much fun for me. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) So Lauren, you, you were on the cover of my first book. Okay. And which was Magnificent Monologues for Kids when you were a kid. And um, it's kind of an interesting story how I got to write those books. I uh, coached for a while and I was acting at the same time. I wasn't really writing plays very much at that time. But um, they, um, this young girl named Soroya came and she, do you know Soroya? Do you know who that is, Lauren? Um, her name sounds so familiar. She came, yeah. She, she came and her mother said, she was biracial, she's biracial. And so she said, look, and there was like six monologue books in those days. Okay. About six. And she said, Hey, um, her mother said, we can't find a monologue for her. Can you write one? So I wrote one. I, and the agents, every agent just saw this, the same monologues over and over again. Cause there was only six books. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. when she performed it, the agent said, Oh, so nice to see a fresh monologue. Who did that one? Who wrote that? And she said, Chambers did. And the, the agent said, I didn't know Chambers wrote. Well, it turned out the mother owned a publishing house. Okay. Oh, what? And she like said, hey, uh, I, you have more monologues? Now, as you know, the answer in Hollywood is always yes, even though the answer was really no. And oh, I yeah. said, yes, I do have more. Uh, she's like, oh, can you send them to me? I would like to um, you know, publish your first book. And so I said, my grandmother is sick, lied about that. And, um, and she, I have to go visit her for two weeks. So I, I got a pair of pajamas. I, um, I sat in one room for two weeks. I gained 10 pounds and I wrote 50 monologues and then I put my clothes on and I had a big party and Lauren, you came to that party. Okay. And you, um, and I tested all those monologues on you guys. Oh yeah, right. this is coming back to me. And yeah, so, yeah. and then, um, so then I called her and I said, "Hey, I got, I'm back, and I got the monologues." And then she did something that has totally transformed the business. She said, "I was thinking while you were visiting your grandmother, there's never been a book of commercials for actors to actually practice." Now, there have been tons of books about how to get into commercials, but the problem with those books is they don't have any commercials to practice. Right. And so I have to give um, I have to give credit to uh, Renee Watley. She's uh, uh, she came up with the idea. And so she goes, do you have any commercials? And the answer is yes. yes. And so <laughs> my grandmother's still not feeling well. OK, so I'll call you in two weeks. I gained 10 more pounds, got another pair of pajamas. <laughs> Lauren and all her friends came over, tested the commercials, and that's how I got my first two books. Oh, my goodness. Okay, that story is amazing, and I just Googled Magnificent Monologues for Kids, and it's so cute, and Lauren was so cute. <laughs> I love this. I'll have to post it in like, on our Instagram or something when your episode comes out. This is exactly the same? Yes. <laughs> Oh my God. You guys can't see me right now. My face is super red. <laughs> I remember this picture. It was the big bangs and like always super short. So like small, one of the smallest kids in the picture. Yes. The smallest kid in the picture. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love it. These stories are so wild. Well, yeah. there's Lauren is, there's also a kind of a, an amazing 
thing about Loring too that so I always my father was a um a car salesman okay and a really um he not like a he was he was one of the best car salesmen in the entire world he's when he passed away he actually had sold more BMWs and Volkswagens than almost anyone who had ever lived okay and he did this because people would buy from him and then when their new car would happen they would just buy like they never went to anybody else because he was so honest and he would find that their car and he, he would he would sell it to them when they first got married he would sell their then they get their wife a car he would sell their first kid a car and like you know so he's always been about when you walk in the room who you are okay mm-hmm. like right away who you are and that's what i've always believed about auditioning okay so i work with lauren and then um Years go by and, you know, I work, I don't, I don't work with her. I think I was doing a pilot or something at the time and I stopped working with her for a while. And Lauren books a reality show. What was the reality show? Oh, that's right. Yeah. That was a situation comedy that was on Bravo. Yeah. And it was, and, and Sean Hayes is, he's the producer, right? Yeah. And they're showing how people write a sitcom and then they're showing how that they actually you know, make the sitcom. And during the course of one of the episodes, they show where the actors come in. Okay. Yes. yes. And so Lauren walks in the room. Okay. And she is like, like my dad, she's like owns that room. And then the, the miracle of all miracles is I get to hear what they said after that. I know, which we never do, right? That's so incredible to be. And they're like, oh my God, this girl, she walks in the room. So I thought that was like what I always call these things called God clues. Like God gives you these clues that you're on the right path. Okay. And like that Lauren, like that Lauren doing that and doing what we had worked on a lot and, and then getting such positive feedback by these major producers because of it. And of course, of all the actors, she ends up booking it. Okay was really to me a god clue and i was really super proud of her for that moment oh that's so sweet that's so cool thank you chambers yeah seriously i owe that 100 percent to you i remember when i first started acting I, some of the feedback and this was when i was like a kid too but i remember they were like she seemed shy or kind of like stiff and uptight and i remember i started working with you and it became again like this having fun and just like letting loose and like not really giving a shit about like, you know, having to come into a room and like be a good little kid and be like, yes, hi, my name is Lauren Chappell. I am eight years old. Like, no, it was like, I'm going to be a human and just, you know, relax and talk and not answer in one word. Um, And that changed everything of just being able to, to be yourself walking in. Yeah. And you telling that story, I like, didn't even, I totally forgot about that, that there was, so rare that we never get to see as actors. And then you doing it also has made, you know, I've coached thousands of kids since then, not kids, but adults, everybody. And I've taught those, that same technique and you doing that and using that showed me that that was actually working, that we need to actually make that happen. You know, and that people, and it's, and you know, what we forget about casting directors is they get paid by the job, not by the week. So Mm -hmm. they, they, when you walk in the door, they want you to be good. Yes, they do yes. not want to be casting all the time. Right, so they can move on to the next thing. Exactly. And one of the keys about this too is that um, I'm one. Of, I'm also married to Betsy Sollinger, and she is a film and TV producer. So I, um, I'm very lucky in that I get to watch a lot of the auditions uh, for projects that she does. Oh, and wow. um, so I get to, and you know. 
I will say from when I first started, I've changed my technique about seven times because the business has changed. Okay. And I get to see how, you know, how certain things work and what other coaches are saying and how some of those things do work and some of those things don't work. And, um, I really feel blessed because she's a really good partner and it's really helpful for my coaching to watch those auditions. Wow. Yeah. That must be so helpful. Wow. Cool. Yeah. I'm curious, like when you, when you do get to watch, like what stands out to you the most? Like, what do you notice when you watch those tapes in terms of like, whoa, this person's awesome or like, oh, okay. This person. You know how um, you always hear like, okay, don't use, you know, make a plain background. Use, uh, you know, oh, yes. tape, don't use any props or whatever. Yes. Oh mm-hmm. my God. The people who get callbacks, they shoot them in their kitchen. They use all the props in their kitchen. They're hilarious. <laughs> You know what I mean? I mean, it's like totally the opposite of what everyone tells you. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like you actually, you know, they say, take the wonder out. They'll make them go. I wonder if she was in the set, if she would be able to pull this off. No, they just do it. Okay. Mm. And, and my, and um, I I don't want to say any names that wouldn't be fair, but there's a lot of big Broadway actors that uh, have auditioned for my wife and they're really good at that. Okay. They really like nail all that. Okay. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the main things that people always say is don't, you know, make a plain wall and these people really stick out because they, you actually see what they would be like as the character. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that before. Yeah. I've have, um, one of my teachers, um, her husband, I think I'm going to mess up this story, but I think auditioned for his first Broadway show, like on video in their living room and booked it or something Um, like you. And it makes so much sense, right? Because you want to see people in an environment like it's kind of hard to imagine when everybody's just in front of, especially if you're talking self tapes, like in front of these backgrounds and backdrops. But like, I also understand how, the background could be potentially um, just distracting and like seeing everybody's dogs in the back. It's like making me not pay attention to the actor, you know? So it's, it's very, very interesting that you gave that answer. Yeah. I think that, well, also just imagine though, if every single person has a white background, imagine what your eyes, if you're watching it, what your eyes just get attuned to it. And all of a sudden someone's standing in front of a, a plaid background. Okay. Then you're, there's a little electricity that goes through your body and then you're like, Oh, who is this person? Okay. Or don't they know the rule? And then you all of a sudden watch a really good performance. You're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Huh. That actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I also love like all of my self tapes. I always use props because I just find like, you know what? This is such a treat. If we don't have to be in a casting office, we can use what we have. Like, why wouldn't we? So, you know, if I have to eat cake in a scene, like this Mrs. Maisel episode that just came out, I'm like, the whole scene is about a piece of cake on the table. I like had to eat. So I like put my favorite piece of cake in my self tape. And I was like, I'm going to freaking eat that cake. Yeah. And I got to eat cake even better. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> gluten free, obviously. Uh, obviously, yes, gluten free. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's such and- empowering advice, Chambers. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you for 
Uh, can I tell you what the project I'm working on right now is? Yes, okay. please tell us. Oh, okay, I so um, <laughs> look, we are at a, we as performers are at a truly magical moment right now in the world, okay? Because everybody watched every streaming thing they could possibly want during the pandemic. And there are so many things being shot right now. It's ridiculous, Okay. And um, it's like crazy. And I don't know if you also saw the new uh, labor, uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, but they were saying that acting actors, um, that the number of jobs was going up like 14 percent over the next decade, higher than almost anything but like nurses. What? OK. Wow. That's we're, awesome. at, we're at this incredible moment. At the same time, I listened to uh, I've been listening to a lot of short stories recently because I, I, I felt during the pandemic that I, there was a lot of famous authors I didn't know much about and I couldn't listen to that many novels. So I started to listen to short stories. And you know what was really weird about the short stories is that almost every one of these famous writers also taught creative writing at a university. OK, like they didn't just like I'm a short story writer. That's all they did. OK, that's so what's what I love about you two is like, yes, you're actors, but you also have this podcast. OK. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what other everyone has to do right now. We have to create all of our own stuff. So during the pandemic, I always have actors in my studio, but during the pandemic, I couldn't. So I just started to write um, as much as possible. And to make a long story short, in June, I have six plays opening in L.A. What? Oh six? Six. Oh Where? When? How? <laughs> so, um, and I've been working on a number of them for years, and they all just kind of came at the same time. Um, so we have the amazing Hollywood Fringe Festival here, and you know, and you know, it's weird in in America, people don't quite understand what the Fringe is, but you know, in England, the Edinburgh, do you know that the what? Edinburgh Fringe Festival is the third most event in the world people buy tickets to, next to the Olympics and the soccer championships. Holy moly. In the world. In the world. Okay. Wow. And, you know, like, let's talk about Fleabag. I mean, do you guys see Vlad, Fleabag? Of course. Oh, yes. Right? Just the first couple episodes. Yeah. I and, love well, it. and you should try to – also, you can for free watch on Amazon. You can watch the one-person show of it. Okay? And, you know, it was a one-person show first. Where? At the Fringe Festival. Okay? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, unlike, unlike most theaters – you. Most people can't afford like, you know, $75,000 to put on a play, okay? Mm -hmm. But the Fringe makes an opportunity so the plays, you can put on these incredible performances and try out new things. And so that's what I did. I did that during the pandemic, and I, um, I have six that are going to open. Oh, that's amazing. What an accomplishment. Yeah. Uh, one of them is called Shitheads. Okay, and um, that is a, a seven-character play that I've written, and I'm really excited about. It is um, – I've really been upset lately about the whole influencer culture, okay? Uh, because, I mean, the idea that I'm an influencer – you say I'm an influencer, it's like it's so arrogant. Like, you know, you're going to start listening to me about what I – you know, it's like so ridiculous, you know, and, and – uh, I agree. It's just – it, you know, it's just dumb. Okay. And uh, no, I, I will say that there are many people that deserve to be influencers that are okay. And there's some funny people that are Ryan, like Ryan Higa and people who make really great skits, but in general, so I, I wrote a savage comedy called shitheads about a group of influencers and when they get together and make this whole, and we're having the best time rehearsing this because it's so much fun to savage that whole culture. 
Oh my gosh. That must be so hilarious. Oh, I wish I would be, I was going to be in LA in, in June. Well, I hope to bring it to the New York. <laughs> so maybe that'll happen, right? Please yes. do. That would be amazing. The other thing is um, during the pandemic, theater companies around the world who I had heard about, but never been to Brussels or never been to Thailand to see during the pandemic, they opened up their archives so people could get to see their work. Okay. So I saw all kinds of incredible things. And um, I really wanted to create a real physical piece of theater, something that would be really funny and about something I've been working on trying to write about things I don't quite understand instead of writing about things I do understand. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most incredible complicated things for any man to understand is female joy Hmm. Hmm. because it's so wonderful and so it's so huge and so like a wave and it's so incredible so i started working with these group of uh, well-trained young actresses um kara and ashley and we we created this piece called happy girl and it's been really fun to work on that and i'm excited that's going to open also in los angeles during that time oh wow i love that it is it is really fun. And if you think about it, if you do something really physical, it's really hard to do a piece about physical if you're focusing on depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And so this gives them all these kind of, you know, cool like versions of and they play little girls, and they play, you know, older girls and they play all these incredible things. And it's got a lot. My work always has lots of twists and turns. And um, I, I've, I've been calling the, all these plays something called the listening project. Because I don't want to be the white male who's you know, creating a piece about female joy. I want to be the person who's listening to young women and saying, okay, that sounds interesting. I love that idea. How would we put that together on stage? Okay. Mm-hmm. And and being part of the process, okay, and of helping – because I do have experience of putting plays on stage, and they don't, but they do have a lot more experience with female joy than I do, okay? Mm-hmm. So we're kind of – together on that. I love that's that. That's, yeah, that's such a beautiful collaboration. And I, I love what you said about kind of, of the listening project and being, being like a, a support and a guidance there, but allowing, you know, these two to, yeah, to share stories and shape their ideas. That's, that's so beautiful. Thank you. Okay. I have a question. I, I can't stop thinking about this. So I want to just go back to something you said like several minutes ago. Okay. Um, <laughs> when you said that supposedly the amount of jobs for actors are increasing at a, an alarming rate, alarming, not the word you used. Um, is that in Los Angeles specifically? No, or no, this, is a Euro, no, this is a Euro, the Bureau of Health of Labor and Statistics. Okay. So in the U.S.? In the U.S. Mm. Interesting. That's crazy. Yeah, because it does feel like, especially, I think, to, I'll speak for myself, especially for me, it feels like the market, at least in New York, is super saturated. Everyone's really amazing. Everyone I know is unbelievably talented, and none of us seem to book any sort of consistent work or consistent enough work. And so I find that so surprising it seems like there are just so many more actors than jobs well you also you know like i really really like hallmark movies okay um i i don't know i just i'm like that's like my guilty pleasure is hallmark movies okay and hallmark movies are shot everywhere 
So mm-hmm. things are not done just in New York anymore. You know, they're done everywhere. So, I mean, there's, I do workshops in Louisville, Kentucky. And I, when I show up, they say, oh, we had seven Hallmark movies here this week or, or this month or whatever. There's all these various things like that, that are, you know, there's no longer one place where people are auditioning. Okay. You know what, that, that makes a lot more sense. I think probably, so it feels very saturated on the coasts and like, which makes sense. And the jobs are increasing everywhere, but we, we might not be feeling it or yeah. Okay. That, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. And, and that's really cool. And that's amazing. And I think that's something that this pandemic has done is shown people, they don't just have to be in LA or New York or Atlanta, you know? No. It, yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. There's like, you know, and you know, I mean, is, I mean, think about how, like when we were little and we would think about Broadway, like Broadway is like a cult now and people watch, I mean, you know, you, if you get Broadway world, if you subscribe to that, I mean, people are like, they're obsessed with Broadway now, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and when the show comes to their town, ah! you know, it's <laughs> you know I mean, like, they're just like, you know, they call me, oh my God, did you see the prom? I mean, they're just like, so, you know, they, you know, and people in New York, are like, oh, the prom, that's already closed. They don't care in Fort Worth. It's not coming to Fort Worth. They're obsessed. Okay. <laughs> that is true. so true. It's so true. And, you know, there are so many, I mean, more people saw, theater last year then saw professional athletics wow yes not actually we'd say last year because of the pandemic but the year like 2018 2019 okay yeah huh yeah 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 and you can also go to a play a person can bring their you know a person can bring their family you can see a Broadway show in places and it's much cheaper than you can't, you can't take your family to see a professional football game. Mm. Right. Because I mean, it's like, I mean, the Steelers came to Los Angeles and it was like, it was going to cost my family a thousand dollars to go see the Steelers. Play. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There's like more outlets and more venues. That's true to see, even if it's not like Broadway theaters, but like the off Broadway of places too. Like I know LA's got so many places like for $1, that. Thousand dollars, I can subscribe to the Amison, the right. Taper, and the Geffen for my entire family for the whole season. Yeah, and that's the Pasadena Playhouse. All of them I can subscribe, and isn't that for for instead of one game, which may end up being boring, right? right. <laughs> yeah yeah that's right at least if you go to the theater no matter what you're going to be entertained in some way that is true these are oh things i've never thought about because i try to go to a sports game maybe once a year oh, wow. <laughs> that's one more time than i do <laughs> oh man I totally, I totally get that that's like a important you know it's something that uh but you know it's, it's just not in our luckily my fa- my son doesn't really uh He's not into sports that much, so he doesn't care if we go see any sports games. But, you know, he um, – and, and the Taper and the Amison, they have these great programs where young people can go and see tickets for like $5. Oh, my goodness. And so wow. he, he's really uh, – during the pandemic, a lot of very wealthy people funded very different programs. Teen Ticks is one of them. I mean, he saw – you got to see uh, Brian Cranston. Is, uh, Brian Cranston wow. has been play. And the tickets – right? Well. You know, they're like mm-hmm. sold out. The tickets for young people were 5 bucks. Jeez. Oh my gosh. Isn't that incredible? I love that. Can I like somehow get my student ID out and pretend to be a 
15 or something. If you walk up there. I don't, I think they're going to think you're like under 25. So you'll be fine. <laughs> Okay, yeah, you cool. can totally pass. All right, you too, Alyssa. We can we can go take a trip. There. <laughs> there we go. Here's our high school IDs. That's so sweet. Well, it's been so great getting to know you and hear all of your really amazing stories and your fascinating career and all of the plays that you have opening up. I mean, six plays, that's really, really impressive. It's obviously you've been very busy. <laughs> um, and it's just so cool to hear from someone that's known Lauren since she was a cute little child. Um, now she's a cute little adult. So um, it's just, I'm so glad that you came on today. It's been great. Echoing everything Alyssa said, it's so great talking to you, Chambers. I'm so glad to to reconnect with you, to hear all these stories that I've known you so long and didn't know about you. You just always inspire me and make me laugh at the same time. And it's just such a joy to to talk to you. So thank you for coming on. Thanks guys for asking me. It's it's been it's been a real pleasure. I'm I'm I know I talk a lot, but uh, I I was glad to have a chance to share those with you. And and I really love the positivity that you guys are putting back in the world. So I think that's a really important thing. And and also I love that you're creating all these other different projects. Thank you so much for listening. We always love hearing from you. You can email us at positivecreativitypodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at Positive Creativity Podcast. And for more info on our guest today, please view the show notes. Join us next time on Positive Creativity Podcast.